Sorry. Oh, my goodness. I had a late lunch. Oh, hello. Hello. Testing, testing. So, uh, was not the couple's dinner just so much fun? You guys, you swains, I, I keep thinking about you guys because, uh, you know, it was just so fun to see you guys all dolled up and uh, you all were out there on the railing, you know, uh, just romance. I mean, Andy, the look that you had in your eye for Amanda <laughs> uh, was, was pretty awesome. Um, and had a whole lot of fun with you. I, Chris and I uh, were really laughing hard with our wives when we got home uh, because of this fun little thing that we do where the husbands grab their wives' uh, hands, you know, and, and Chris was like, you know what you should have done? Um, you should have been like, okay, now just touch her face just with the side of your hand. Just, oh, yes, now touch. Now grab the other side, touch the other side of her face. Now just kind of pinch those little cheeks. Just pinch those little cheeks and you're just gonna shake me a little bit. Just, oh, you're such a cute little wife. You're such a cute little wife. You know, anyways, I was like, Chris, I don't know how you do things where you're from, but we try to keep it mature around here, so. <laughs> David's trying to do a sound check, and I'm like slapping the mic and doing kissy kissies. Uh, everyone's got notes. My wife printed them this morning at about 9 a.m. Amazing wife that she is. Uh, so we were over at the Teskies the other night and, uh, after Polina church and Sarah had given, uh, Tatum and Titus a ride home from Polina church out to their house. And, uh, she, she was telling Sarah about a certain young man in our church who has a crush on a certain young woman in our church. Tatum has all the hot gossip in case you're wondering. And, uh, I believe the question was, you know, what does it mean to be in love? You know, and so Tatum said, well, you know, you, the boy takes the girl out on a date and, um, what's a date, you know? And, oh, well they go out to a fancy restaurant and, um, you know, and, and eat fancy food and it costs a lot of money. And then, um, I think Titus said something about a hotel room involved <laughs> and then, um, and then Tatum said, yes, and then they do appropriate things. <laughs> and, uh, and so we were, so then we were downloading after that at the house and, and Tatum, I mean, she just started pinching me and hitting my arm and give me the look like, stop talking about me in front of everyone about this stuff, you know? And, uh, so it's just, so then we're like, well, what's appropriate stuff, you know, because I, she says, appropriate and inappropriate. There's no, there's no in, in there. So, so, but then we were like, it's true. You know, husbands, they take their wives out on a date, you know, and get a hotel room and <laughs> do appropriate thing. It's appropriate within the bonds of marriage. So Tatum always just giving us such a chuckle. So there in your notes, we're looking at, uh, Part nine. Thanks for reorganizing your schedule this last week, you guys. Uh, and it is much more pleasant in here than normal, uh, cooler air. Um, but we're looking at real love on the part of Christian husbands. And then our 10th part will be four facets of that love. Um, and it's from Ephesians 5, 25 through 33. In King Arthur's Camelot, written by Alan J. Lerner in 1960, he wrote, how to handle a woman. 
There's a way, said the wise old man, a way been known by every woman since the whole rigmarole began. Do I flatter her? I begged him answer. Do I threaten or cajole or plead? Do I brood or play the gay romancer? Gay meant something else back then. Said he's smiling. No, indeed. How to handle a woman. Mark me well. I will tell you, sir, the way to, way to handle a woman is to love her. Simply love her. Merely love her. Love her. And then with an exclamation point. Love her. So Alan J. Lerner, pro, uh, writing and composing for a Broadway play in the 60s, put such very Christian words in the name of, uh, in the lips of King Arthur. And it makes us wonder, you know, with this whole section concerning marriage in Ephesians 5, if we really get how to handle a woman or uh, how to um, cause her to swoon with reciprocal love. You might have assumed that Paul would say to a husband in light of a woman's submission, assume your leadership. Yeah. How come it doesn't say that? You know, function as the head, take control. But there's nothing like that written to the husbands. Paul's comments about headship are spoken only to the wives. To the husband, it says, husbands, love your wives. Verse 25. Verse 28, husbands ought to love their own wives. Verse 33, love her as himself. Love her, love her, love her. He's not invalidating the headship of a Christian husband. Rather, he is being profoundly emphatic about the substance of headship far from being strong willed domination far from a dictatorial self-assertion this headship is a portrait of redemption and it will display itself and express itself in a radical self-sacrificial love for the benefit of the object of its affection In Ephesians, love is really the dominant thing. In particular, God's great emphasis of love for us that stretches all the way to eternity past. God's love weaves through Ephesians. Also in the book is a repeated theme of loving one another. In chapter 4, verse 2, with all lowliness and gentleness, with long-suffering, bear with one another in love. If that's not practical for the church, we don't know really what is. People who are sinners who are trying to live together in a Christian community, it's just a bigger picture of marriage. In chapter 4, there's a mutual responsibility of speaking the truth to one another in love. Literally, in Ephesians 4.15, it's in the Greek. Uh, instead of speaking the truth in love, like our translation, it's literally truthing in love. Whether it's speech or writing or our actions, we are truthing to one another in love. In chapter 5, verse 2, we walk in love. Or NIV says, live in love. We have a mutual responsibility of submission towards one another, as well as a mutual responsibility of love towards one another. 
Why love? Why not a different verb here for the husband? Something that corresponds better to submit. (laughs) Submit, and then the corresponding verb would be lead. Oh, I love to lead. I'm a good leader. Or rule your home well, or direct or manage your home and manage your wife and oversee your wife. But Paul knows even in a Christian husband that the effects of the fall from the very beginning would cause a man to lead and fall into domination, exploitation, using the woman, the wife, and victimizing her. These are all qualities that are opposite Christian headship. But love is to be a towering work of a husband. How does Paul tell us to love He gives us a direction and a listing with like a magnetic backing that should snap right to the fridge. No, he doesn't. (laughs) There's no magnet. There's no practical list that should snap next to a picture of our kids on the fridge that would say something like, take your wife on a date. She likes dinner and a movie. Bring her flowers. Compose a poem. There's nothing like that in the Bible. Those things are not there. Instead, what Paul does is he gives us a testimony of love in the form of an epic novel of the greatest lover of all time, Jesus Christ, who has loved his beloved with all of his heart. And so before you in Ephesians chapter five is this great display of love, the greatest that the world has ever known. And so Paul is saying, I can do no better than to recount to you romance's greatest story. He plunges us in Ephesians 5 deeply into a fresh consideration of the sacrifice of Jesus Christ. That is going to provide the basis, the example, and the motivation for everything a Christian husband is to be. Submission, in your notes that we see in verse 22 through 24 is to be romanced in verses 25 through 33. How to handle a woman? Mark me well, dear sir. The way to handle her well is to love her. Simply love her, merely love her, love her, love her, love her. How often do we think of this deep and holy responsibility towards our wife in light of the doctrine of the atonement with the accomplishment of the cross in mind. This isn't what we see in 99% of the books that are on Christian bookstore shelves. They are chock full of practical things that oftentimes are absent and actually counter to the gospel and the methodology that's laid before us in Ephesians chapter five. Oh, true, they slap a few verses on some ideas, but typically they're divorced from the whole context of Scripture in the first place. But Paul, he just leads us straight to the gospel, that great epic of romance of Jesus to the church. In your notes there, listen to the words and look at the words of Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones. He says, foolish Christians, have you got so tired of hearing about the cross Do you know so much about it? Do you understand it so exhaustively that it cannot any longer move you? Ah, you say, I want the higher teaching now. I want detailed teaching now as to how I'm to live the sanctified life. 
You will never live the sanctified life unless you're always there by the cross Unless it is governing the whole of your life and influencing the whole of your outlook and your every activity, you cannot leave the cross behind. You are never such an advanced Christian that it is a mere beginning as far as you are concerned. That is the way to make shipwreck of marriage and everything else. I start there. I continue there. And woe is me if I ever cease to be there. And that's how Paul teaches us about marriage. He drives us to the cross. Our understanding of the cross of Jesus is the basis on how we love each other. Look at 1 John 4.10. In this is love. Not that we love God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation of our sins. Beloved, if God so loved us, we also ought to love God. No, that's not what it says. We also ought to love God one another. Where does this love come from? From the night before the cross, when Jesus bent down to wash the disciples feet. And in John 13, 14, he says, if I, then your Lord and teacher have washed your feet, you also ought to wash. And then one of the disciples interrupts and says your feet, Jesus, right? He says, no, one another's feet. If we did wash Jesus's feet, we might've bragged about it. I washed the feet of Jesus in Ephesians. It says, walk in love as Christ. Ephesians five, two walk in love as Christ has loved us and given himself for us an offering and a sacrifice to God for a sweet smelling aroma. So we're given the, uh, imperative that we need to walk in love, but we're also given how we're given the model of how to love one another there in Ephesians five, two, that it's supposed to be like Jesus self-sacrificial offering of our lives to one another. The gospel builds real community. The gospel provides a model and motivation for our love to one another And as a result of being absorbed in the cross, we begin to care for one another. Nonetheless, husbands toward their wives. It happens organically in response to the gospel. It grows out of the cross. It's apostolic to love this way. It's Pauline to love this way. It's the Christian way. Taking people to the cross as the basis to loving one another. If you read the New Testament, you don't find a program anywhere. And that ought to tell us something about how do we live our life now? Do we look for all sorts of different programs? Paul applies his techniques to husbands by showing them Jesus in a way that would teach them how to love their bride. Love is learned from a person. It's learned by watching Jesus and then by saying, now you know something of what real love is on the part of a husband and a wife. We need very little practical application after looking at the gospel. In your notes, Puritan William J. in his book, Christian Contemplated, course of lectures delivered in Argyle Chapel, Bath, writes, William J. 
Who besides an apostle would have thought of enforcing conjugal affection by reference to the love of Christ to his church? But he's done this and has thus represented redeeming love as a kind of holy atmosphere surrounding a Christian on all sides, accompanying him everywhere, sustaining his spiritual existence, the very element in which his religion lives, moves, and has its being, And this indeed is religion. And by the way, when Puritans used the term religion, they meant bona fide Christianity. Not a name, not a creed, not a form, not an abstract feeling, not an observance of times and places, not a mere mental costume or holy dress, which we put on exclusively for certain seasons or occasions. No, but a moral habit, a mental taste, and the spirit of the mind, which will spontaneously appear. It's not programmed in our language, feeling, and behavior by a reference of Jesus Christ as the ground of hope and the model of immigration. The cross. This is something that we try to do in everything that we teach here at Calvary Chapel. Everything that we need outwork from us comes from looking at the gospel, comes at looking from our sinful condition and God's great love for us. And he pursued us even when we were sinners at war with him, Christ pursued us and initiated relationship and redemption with us and bought us back by grace. Tim Keller says, as one commentator put it, Paul saw that when God designed the original marriage, he already had Christ in the church in mind. This is one of God's great purposes in marriage to picture the relationship between Christ and his redeemed people forever. And then Keller picks up. If God had the gospel of Jesus salvation in mind, when he established marriage, then marriage only works to the degree that approximates the pattern of God's self giving love in Christ. What Paul is saying not only answers the objection that marriage is oppressive and restrictive, but it also addresses the sense that the demands of marriage are overwhelming. There is so much to do that we don't know where to start. Start here, Paul says. Do for your spouse what God did for you in Jesus, and the rest will follow. This is the secret. That the gospel of Jesus and marriage explain one another. That when God invented marriage, he already had the saving work of Jesus in mind. George McDonald, founder of McDonald's fine fast food. No, actually not at all. He was a Scottish author, a poet, a Christian minister, a pioneering figure in the field of fantasy literature and the mentor of his fellow writer, Lewis Carroll, who I believe wrote a Christmas story. George McDonald said, the man who thoroughly loves God is the only man who will love a woman ideally. Kind of makes me think of our quote from back in our submission passage about um, a good Christian woman cannot be a bad wife. It's the same here. The man who thoroughly loves God is the only man who will love a woman ideally. And I think that's the key word right there for you is that ideally. Who can love her with the love God thought of between them when he made male and female The man, I repeat, who loves God with his very life is the man who alone is capable of grand, perfect, glorious love to any woman. 
love on the part, I believe this is in your notes, love on the part of a Christian husband is defined as an unceasing commitment to his wife for her highest good. Verse 25 says, husbands love your wives. That's what these words mean. A husband in unceasing commitment to his wife acts for her highest good. And just as Paul specifically addresses wives in verse 22, remember the case of direct address? You guys remember that? The case of direct address where it's from the Lord to the wife. That's the language. It's, it's not husband to the wife to try to like move her in a certain direction. The case of direct address here again, Paul uses the case of direct address. He's saying to the husbands, he's not telling wives that they should go home and say to their husbands, why aren't you loving me? When are you going to start loving me? You're supposed to love me. You're not loving me. And just as a husband is never given the right to goad his wife into submission, so too a Christian wife is never granted the prerogative of badgering her husband into loving her more. Although it works. (laughs) This is not a license for a wife to use whatever means necessary to manipulate him into loving her in a way she thinks she deserves As is the case of a Christian wife regarding submission, this command to love is an obedience that a Christian husband owes to his Savior who has bought him. It's for us, brothers. And so as we hear it from Paul, rather the Holy Spirit through Paul, we feel the forcefulness and the constraint that comes from Jesus Christ himself. Husbands, love your wives. And just as when he wrote to the wives, this is revolutionary, radical writing that the world had not known in its day. Paul confronts his culture, their society, with a radical alternative to what was represented in their culture, to a new way of life, a new way of living, to principles found in the Bible to power that's discovered by the Spirit of God, to lives linked with the Lord Jesus. Shel Silverstein, you guys remember him, Where the Sidewalk Ends, wrote a great attack on male chauvinism. Put another log on the fire. Cook me up some bacon and some beans. I just heard Jacob perk up. Mm Mm-hmm. And go out to the car and change the tire. Wash my socks and sew my old blue jeans. Come on, baby. You can fill my pipe and then go fetch my slippers and boil me up another pot of tea. Then put another log on the fire, babe, and come and tell me why you're leaving me. Now, don't I let you wash the car on Sunday? And don't I warn you when you're getting fat? Ain't I going to take you fishing with me someday? Well, a man can't love a woman more than that. And ain't I always nice to your kid's sister? And don't I take her out driving every night? So sit here at my feet, because I like it when you're sweet. And you know it ain't feminine to fight. Some of us may may have grown up in homes where 
It was kind of like that. <laughs> I mean, maybe like four out of five of those things, right? And we assume that that's the way it should be in our home. One writer said that here Paul's appeal to husbands to love their wives was a bare knuckled swing at the domestic ethics of his time. What about our time? What about our day, our culture, all, our society, the domestic ethics of 21st century Prineville? We tend to think of the woman as the one who takes up the role as the nurturer. And we look at the husband's role as one that just goes out and kills an animal and slaps some meat on the table. The ultimate man is Jesus Christ, and he shows love by laying himself down. Responsibility to love determined by us men. We set the temperature of love in our homes. We're here tonight because we have come to know the love of Jesus, and that moves us to worship and serve and give and honor and sacrifice and obey and give and serve and obey and sacrifice and worship and repeat and repeat and repeat because we've known the love of Jesus and it's moved us to living life for him within a community. It's the same with our wives. As we lay our life down for her, she begins to reciprocate with the roles that God has given her. Tim Savage said, the wide range of meaning attributed to the term love is enough to tax even the most gifted lexicologist. We're going to get into that in just a little bit. All the different meanings when we say love, what does that mean? But Ephesians 3.18 says, oh, Paul says, oh, might you be able to comprehend with all the saints what is the width and the length and the depth and the height Oh, that you would know the love of Christ, which passes knowledge, that you may be filled with the fullness of God. Tim Savage says, and I believe it's in your notes. There is, however, an exercise we can perform to derive a more precise understanding of this love. So you guys ready for this exercise? And bend and stretch and bend and stretch. No, we must picture in our minds the outer limits of Christ's sacrifice. The two points forming the launching pad and the destination of his love. Heaven certainly represents the point of departure. If we could imagine the incomparable splendor that surrounded Jesus in heaven, we'd appreciate how much love was required to pry him loose from such eternal bliss. The cross, on the other hand, was love's destination. If we could imagine the appalling nature of crucifixion, we could gain an appreciation of the depth of love required to embrace a fate so brutal. The reality, of course, is that none of us can fully comprehend either the splendor of heaven or the horror of a cross. They represent polar extremes and encompass a gulf infinitely wide, but it is precisely that gulf that represents the measure of Christ's love. And so you have come to this place tonight and faithfully to Sunday mornings and to home groups and Proverbs in the park and different service projects because his love has awakened you to love and his love has aroused you to love and his love has called forth your love. His love has incited your love. His love has romanced you into submission towards him. 
all of this from a response to love that was initiated by him. You know, the old hymn by Isaac Watts, when I survey the wondrous cross on which the prince of glory died, my richest gain I count but loss and pour contempt on all my pride. Forbid it, Lord, that I should boast, save in the death of Christ my God, all the vain things that charm me most, I sacrifice them to his blood. Were the whole realm of nature mine, that were a present far too small. Love so amazing, so divine, demands my soul, my life, my all. All of our love to the Lord is but a reciprocation of his love towards us. Love that was initiated by him, which was a part of the reason we sing so much about his love for us. I believe it savage again. The enormity of Christ's love suggests an important implication for marriage. A husband must come to view his love as much more than a reciprocal duty. Now, the reciprocation is nice. I mean, we've been talking about it for like the last 10 minutes. Like, oh man, like we reciprocate it back to Jesus because we've seen him do that for us. We want to do that back towards him. But that wasn't why he did it. Goes on to say, uh, so a husband must come to view his love much as much more than a reciprocal duty. His love was never meant to be a mere response to his wife's subordination. The radical nature of Christ's love is missed by men who make a habit of pointing out to their wives the importance of submission. Husbands who track closely evidence of their wives' subordination invariably neglect their own responsibility. The call of a husband to love his wife ought to be so all-consuming that a husband has little time to attend to his wife's submission. You ever see that? You know, I, I kind of hear a lot of you working men like that, you know, that you kind of hear like people are just online all day and just writing stuff on Facebook and it's like blah, 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 blah. And I've just heard you men go, how do they have time to even be online right now? Like, don't they have work to do? Don't they like, shouldn't they be out like getting the job done? And like, what are they doing? Just sitting there vegging out in front of the screen or their phone. And it's the same concerning the love of a husband to his wife. It's like, how do you even have time to be marking down what your wife's doing for you? You need to be loving your wife and being busy about that task. The parallel is obvious. Your calling men is to love and turn your wife's submission will be drawn out by such love. That is to say her submission is a response to romance. Tim Keller, subordinating ourselves to him, however, is radically safe because he's already shown that he was willing to go to hell and back for us. I like that. I'm going to say it again. Submitting ourselves to him, to Jesus, however, is radically safe because he's already shown that he's willing to go to hell and back for us. Uh, I believe it was Artaxerdia. He writes, throughout the years, it hasn't been uncommon for a husband to say, you know what, Art, my marriage is so cold. There's no real love between us. So I'll ask him, have things always been this way? Oh, no, no. So tell me how your relationship began. And as he begins to talk, what begins apparent is that during the dating process, he was as zealous as an Olympic athlete. There was no sacrifice too great to make on behalf of this girl. Every affection, attention, and energy was hers. 
Then something happened that put a stop to it all. They got married. He won the prize. So he now moves on to scale new heights, a new job, acquisition of bigger and better things. Meanwhile, back at the ranch, the wife who'd grown expecting it to be more of the same, if not better. Uh, I'm sorry, the wife, I think I, I skipped something here. Meanwhile, back at the ranch, the wife who had grown accustomed to the affection and tension of this man while dating enters into a marriage, expecting it to be more of the same, if not better. But while she devotes more and more attention to him, he devotes less and less attention to her. And finally, she basically gives up. Perhaps she even attempts to replace that loss of affection with another kind of pursuit. And I'm somewhere in your notes, sit close by here. When a husband complains that his wife has changed since they've married, the proper question to ask may be, who changed her? Because, my dear brothers, very often the wife you have is the wife you have produced. Again, the wife you have is the wife you have produced. She may very well be the product of your love or the lack of it. And so to a large extent, husbands, you determine the climate of your love in marriage. You determine the climate of love in your marriage. Now, we're going to get into some various kinds of love here, different words in the Greek that speak of love. If you've been in the church very long, no doubt you've heard of them. Uh, one word for love in the Greek is the word eros. It's where we get our word erotic an erotic love. Also how I describe Lindsay's driving. Sometimes you're driving so erotically. Um, oh, you know, okay. Anyways, uh, come on, Mark. Like I knew you'd be tired. I was hoping you'd get a chuckle. Okay. Okay. Erotic love. Eros love is been known to be all take, all take. Okay. Kind of the love won by the compelling beauty of, or uh, worth of an object of a person. Um, usually the type of exotic love experienced between men and their prostitutes. Okay. Uh, then the word phileo. Phileo speaks of a brotherly love. It's where uh, Philadelphia get, is the city of brotherly love. Uh, philos and Delphos, brotherly love. And it's been said to be give and take. So it's a give and take kind of love, a brotherly love. Uh, speaking of friends, sharing a common interest. Uh, the, another Greek word for love is storge. Storge is all give, commonly used to refer to a natural love of one family member to another. But the writers of the New Testament most often use a term never used in secular family codes or in the Greco-Roman world. They picked up a term to describe New Testament Christian love. It's the word agape. Agape. It's a disinterested kind of love and, it and the, the writers kind of infuse their own meaning into it. What it evolves into is a love it's not divorced from feelings and passions as if those things were not important. They're very important. You're almost a Gnostic if you don't think they're important. But it's a kind of love that is not dependent upon feelings or passions as the basis of its expression. 
And agape is the word that Paul uses here for husbands loving their wives. One author wrote of agape, it is a spiritual affection which follows the direction of the will. Unlike feelings, which are instinctive and unreasoned, this can be commanded as a duty. Another definition of agape love speaks of it as a self-giving love. It's totally unselfish. It seeks not its own satisfaction or even affection, answering affection, but that which strives for the highest good of the one loved. It's a love that impels the one loving to give himself in self-sacrifice for the well-being of the one loved. It's a deep-seated, thoroughgoing, intelligent, and purposeful love in which the entire personality, not only the emotions, but the mind and the will express itself. Tim Keller again. Many people hear this and say, I'm sorry. I can't give love if I don't feel it. I can't fake it. That's too mechanical for me. I can understand that reaction. But Paul doesn't simply call us to a naked action. He also commands us to think as we act. Husbands, love your wives just as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. This means we must say to ourselves something like this. Well, when Jesus looked down from the cross, he didn't think, I'm giving myself to you because you are so attractive to me. No, he was in agony and he looked down at us, denying him, abandoning him and betraying him. And in the greatest act of love in history, he stayed. He said, father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. He loved us not because we were lovely to him, but to make us lovely. That is why I'm going to love my spouse. Speak to your heart like that and then fulfill the promises you made on your wedding day. All right, guys, are you on board with this? At the end of the day, this is what you've signed up for, whether you've realized it or not. Saying that you're a Christian husband, this is a Christian husband. Your life is to be characterized by a predetermined commitment to always act in the highest interest and for the greatest good of your wife. Not only is this a command, an imperative that husbands love their wives, but it's a present imperative in the language, which carries a sense of continuity and continuing on. In other words, this love for a husband towards his wife is to be an ongoing performance that can never be interrupted by any display of imperfection on her part. This is a love that is redemptive. It's a love that is drawn out by sin rather than withdraws from sin. I really like that today. It's a love that is drawn out by sin rather than withdraws from sin. It's a love that can overcome manifestations of the fall that still wreak havoc in the best of Christian marriages. Because when the beauty fades, and I've been told it will fade, when the attitudes are less than lovely, and I've been told they can be less than lovely, agape 
brings a warm temperature to the climate of the marriage, whatever the external circumstances may be. Forget how we feel or other reasons and just ask yourself, is my love, my response akin to that, which I've read about in first Corinthians 13. You guys know first Corinthians 13. Anyone here at your wedding day? Did you have first Corinthians 13 read at your wedding day? You guys did classic. You weren't even saved at the time. Were you? It's always the non-Christians. They're like, I don't know much, but I know love is patient. I'm just kidding. (laughs) Just joking, but it's true. huh? Okay. I'm just kidding. Uh, but you, we all love that, right? We all love first Corinthians 13. Some of you are like, I don't know even what a Corinth is. Okay. <laughs> so have you ever done this little drill? Take out the word love and put your name in there. Let's just try it real quick. This is actually a question. I'm doing your homework for you right now. Cause this is like number 11 on your questions. Let's pick someone. Let's, let's say here, um, Let's go with Perry, okay? I'm joking, but let's just for the fun of it. Perry suffers long and is kind. What do you think, Kim? Pretty good description, huh? Right? Tyler does not envy. Tyler does not parade himself. (laughs) Right? Mark is not puffed up. Andy does not behave rudely. Adam does not seek his own. Mark thinks no evil. Jacob does not rejoice in iniquity, but rejoices in the truth. Marty bears all things and believes all things, hopes all things and endures all things. And Matt never fails. (laughs) Some of you guys like, I got out. I got off of that one easy. I'll get to you later next session, David and Alan. All right. Finally, just the fruit of the spirit, Galatians 5, 22 through 23, the fruit of the Holy spirit being in us. Remember it was like second session or third session was about being filled with the spirit in marriage. And when we are filled with the spirit, we have the fruit of love coming off of us. Did you know that the fruit of the spirit is love? And then everything else that follows is actually a byproduct of love. The fruit of the spirit is love and what comes from love is joy and peace, long suffering, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. All right, we'll take a break. We'll come back to our last session of the season. Any yummy sandwich rolls this week, or is that just a one-time thing? No, I'm joking, I'm joking. Oh, Casey's going to totally pound me. All right, you guys, uh, part 10 here, we're going to be looking at four facets, faucets of the Christian husband's love. I read an incredible story uh, book from the library about the Terra Nova expedition. Uh, It was uh, Scotland, England's um, attempt to get to the South Pole, uh, taking a ship down south and then uh, dog sleds, you know, and trying to get uh, and to be the first ones to the South Pole. And 
one of the heroes of the story was Captain Lawrence Edwards Grace. I mean, they must have a hundred names back then, but he was known as Titus Oates. And uh, he was an English army officer and later an Antarctic explorer who died during the Terra Nova expedition. Oates was afflicted with gangrene and frostbite as he walked from his tent into a blizzard. His death is seen as an act of self-sacrifice when aware that his ill health was compromising his three companions' chances of survival, he chose certain death. Captain Oates and 15 other members of the expedition set off from their Cape Evans base camp for the South Pole on 1st of November, 1911. On 4th of January, 1912, only the five-man polar party of Scott, Wilson, Bowers, and Evans and Oates remained to walk the last 167 miles to the pole. On 18 January, 1912, 79 days after starting their journey, they finally reached the pole only to discover a tent that Norwegian explorer Roald Amundsen and his four-man team had left behind at their camp after beating them in the race to be the first to the pole. Inside the tent was a note from Amundsen informing them that his party had reached the South Pole on 14th of December, 1911, beating Scott's party by 35 days. Scott's party faced extreme difficulty and conditions on their return journey, mainly due to the exceptionally adverse weather, poor food supply, injuries sustained from falls, and the effects of scurvy and frostbite, all slowing their progress. On 17th of February, 1912, Oates' feet had become severely frostbitten and had been suggested, but never evidenced, that his war wound had reopened due to the effects of scurvy. He was certainly weakening faster than the others. In his diary entry of 5th of March, Scott wrote, Oates' feet are in a wretched condition. The poor soldier is very nearly done. Oates' slower progress, coupled with the unwillingness of his three remaining companions to leave him, was causing the party to fall behind schedule. With an average of 65 miles between the pre-laid food depots and only a week's worth of food and fuel provided by each depot, they needed to maintain a march of over nine miles a day to have a full ration for the final 400 miles of their return journey across the Ross Ice Shelf. However, nine miles was about their best progress any day, and this had lately reduced to sometimes only three miles a day due to Oates' worsening condition. On the 15th of March, Oates told his companions that he could not go on and proposed that they leave him in a sleeping bag, which they refused to do. He managed for a few more miles that day, but his condition worsened that night. Waking on the morning of the 17th of March... Oates walked out of the tent into a blizzard and negative 40 degrees Fahrenheit temperatures to his death. Scott wrote in his diary, before Oates exited the tent and walked to his death, he uttered the words, I'm just going outside and may be some time. We know that poor Oates was walking to his death, but though we tried to dissuade him, we knew it was the act of a brave man and an English gentleman. John 15, 13 says, Greater love has no one than this, than to lay down one's life for his friends. First John 3.16 says, By this we know love, because he laid down his life for us, and we also ought to lay down our lives for the brethren. You may remember a quote from the first session here from Tim Keller, subordinating ourselves to him, however, is radically safe, because he's already shown that he was willing to go to hell and back for us. And then Keller continues. So 
what do you need to make marriage work? You need to know the secret, the gospel, and how it gives you both the power and pattern for your marriage. On the one hand, the experience of marriage will unveil the beauty and depths of the gospel to you. It will drive you further into reliance on it. On the other hand, a greater understanding of the gospel will help you to experience deeper and deeper union with each other as the year goes on. There, then, is the message of this book, that through marriage, the mystery of the gospel is unveiled. Marriage is a major vehicle for the gospel's remaking of your heart from the inside out and your life from the ground up. By the way, speaking of Tim Keller, there are some books there in the back. I know a couple weeks ago we had some. And so those are for yours. If, if you want to just take, take yours for the taking, if you want to take it, read it, bring it back. And it can just kind of be on a rotating you know, shelf here at the church. Uh, that's great. Or you can borrow and swap with some other people. Um, there's not necessarily one for every couple, but, uh, you can certainly do that. And I can order more if someone wants a certain one of them. Um, but those are a lot of my resources, uh, that I used in this series. So, um, Tim Keller said the reason that marriage is so painful and yet wonderful is because it's a reflection of the gospel, which is painful and wonderful at once. This is what is before us in Ephesians chapter five, the love of Jesus and his church, a love of such sacrifice and surrender and cost and pain that it is nothing less than awesome and terrifying. When God invented marriage, he already had the saving work of Jesus in mind. And so Paul wants us to turn towards the gospel to study it, to gaze at it, to linger over it, and then to copy what you see. This is nothing short than overwhelming. The writer of a popular playground song got it right when they said, first comes love, then comes marriage, then comes a baby in a baby carriage. Love comes first. That agape, it brings that warm temperature to the marriage whatever those external circumstances may be. Richard Halverson was a minister of the former United Presbyterian Church in the United States of America, served from 58 to 81 as the senior pastor of Fourth Presbyterian Church, Bethesda, Maryland. He served as the chaplain of the United States Senate from 81 until eight, uh, 94, was an associate of the National Prayer Breakfast Movement starting in 1956. Halverson was also a member of the Board of World Vision from 56 to 83, serving as chairman from 66 to 83, the president of Concern Ministries, a charitable foundation in Washington, D.C. And Richard Halverson wrote, 69 years of life and 42 of marriage have brought with it a deep settled conviction in the economy of God, 100% of the responsibility for sustaining a marriage belongs to the husband. No failure or sin on the part of the wife is his justification to forsake her. A husband cannot force his wife to receive his love or reciprocate it, but he must love her. How do we learn to do this? By hanging out at the atmosphere of the cross. Fun homework for y'all. Read the book of Hosea. 
Okay, Hosea is an Old Testament book that is an exact picture of the gospel and of a husband who marries a wife that is a harlot who willingly and purposefully goes out and commits adultery and has children with other men. And his call is to keep loving her. And these children whose names were not my people, he would name them my people. It's a picture of the gospel. The book of Romans tells us that. Spurgeon in your notes says the Lord Jesus loves his church unselfishly. That is to say, he never loved her for what she has, but what she is. No, I must go further than that and say that he loved her not so much for what she is, but what he makes her as the object of his love. He loves her not for what comes to him from her or with her, but for what he is able to bestow upon her. His is the strongest love that ever was, for he has loved unseemliness till he has changed it into beauty. He has loved the sinner till he's made him a saint. He's loved the foul and filthy till he's washed them with water by the word of God and presented them to himself without spot or wrinkle or any such thing. A man once heard famous violinist Yehudi Menuhin play beautiful music. And after the concert, he tracked Menuhin down and said, I would give my life to play like that. Menahin replied, I have. We read Ephesians 5 and say, I would give my love, my life to live like that, to love like that. I was just thinking of, uh, if I could live like that, I would give anything. Okay. If I could love like that, I would give anything. And Jesus' response is, I have. I've given my life for that. He's displayed everything for the surrender of his eternal bride. Spurgeon said, this love of Christ is the most amazing thing under heaven, if not heaven itself. Paul quantifies love by comparing it to Jesus. Love is the same as X in a mathematical equation. Until we know what X is, we can't do the math. And so Paul quantifies love by comparing it to Jesus. Husbands, love your wives just as Christ also loved the church and gave himself for her. So X equals Jesus' sacrificial love on the cross. The word as there shows comparison and cause. Christ's love for the church is both the model and the basis of a Christian husband's love for his wife. To summarize, we move from definition of love to a description of love. Love on the part of a Christian husband is described by the kind of love Jesus displays for the church. Could you describe the love of a husband towards a wife for me? Yes, I will describe it by pointing to Jesus's love for the church. Easily overlooked is seeing the change in the tenses Husbands, love your wives. The word love there mentioned earlier, it's in the present tense verb, which in the Greek stresses action most often. It is a continuous, ongoing verb with duration. And it's over and against the next clause, as Christ loved the church. Now that's a past tense 
aorist tense, in the Greek, it captures like a snapshot action. A husband is to continually love his life in the way that Christ, snapshot action, loved his wife. But we know that Jesus, present tense, loves the church and will always love the church. In Revelation chapter 1 verse 5, John writes, To him who loved us and washed us from our sins in his own blood. And nothing's able to separate us because of that. Romans 8, 38 through 39, a song that I used to sing in high school. For I am convinced that neither death nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor things present, nor things to come, nor height, nor depth, nor any other created thing shall be able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus, our Lord. Nothing can separate us from that love. Kevin DeYoung in your notes said, Christian husbands, you don't have the freedom to fall out of love with your wife. What is the primary reason for this? Well, we often make the mistake of talking about Christ's relationship with the church as comparable to our marriage relationships. But that's not what Paul says in Ephesians 5. He says that Christ's relationship with the church is the substance. And our marriage relationships are just a reflection of that. Therefore, our marriages either rightly or poorly reflect the relationship between Christ and his church. This means that for the Christian husband, he knows that he cannot and will not fall out of love with his wife because that would speak falsely about his savior. He knows that within his marriage, there is an even higher calling in loving his wife. And that is the glory of God. If you have your questions note sheet there, I'm going to add a question for you at the end. Something along the lines of, no, too many questions. All you husbands with bloodshot eyes, you're like, You haven't even started the question time yet. Here's your question. How rightly does your marriage relationship reflect the gospel? We all know the old journey song, but we're going to make it Christian and gospel tonight. He's the meaning in my life. He's the inspiration. He brings feeling to my life. He's the inspiration. I want to have you near me. I want to. Okay. Such a good song, man. That'll be sung at next year's uh, couple's dinner. (laughs) Savage says a Christian husband, by the way, is that not like the best name for a um, marriage book author? Savage. Oh, he's savage. No, really, his name's Tim Savage. Um, A Christian husband should draw his inspiration from the exceptional love of Christ. There will never be sufficient reason for Christ to abandon his bride, the church, which bears his name. There will never be sufficient reason for Rory to abandon his bride, who bears his name, Rogers. I was already said here, Paul is speaking to men who can be notoriously slow at connecting the dots. So to be as obvious as possible in this command to love, he takes this fast, limitless, eternal perfection of Jesus Christ and all of its inexhaustibility, and he summarizes it all in a single historical moment. He seizes the most single, 
revealing expression of love of Christ for his bride and thrusts it before us as a definitive illustration of how Christian husbands are to love their wives unceasingly. Paul does what a good pastor must do when he preaches, not leaving us to connect the dots on our own. He connects the dots for us. Husbands, love your wives. Now let me get specific. Like Christ loved the church by giving himself up for her. Is it possible in any way to misunderstand Paul's meaning? It's at the cross, the atonement, the just for the unjust, what we as husbands are to imitate. Four facets of this love to help see some, you see something of this love in all of its beauty. Number one, he has loved her with a self-giving love as Christ also loved the church and gave himself for her. And then later it says again, and gave himself up for her. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. We knew this, but from the perspective point of Jesus, he handed himself over to death. He weighed the pros and cons, knew the bitterness of the cup of the cross, and he drank it. He doesn't need to be chased He stands up and he says, who have you come for in John 18? They said, Jesus. And he said, I am he. Behold, I have come. This is self-initiating, self-giving love. It brought great pleasure to the father. In John chapter 10, verse 17, remember it a few weeks ago. Therefore, my father loves me because I lay my life down that I may take it up again. No one takes it from me, but I lay it down of myself. I have power to lay it down and I have power to take it up again. This command I've received from my father. Jesus was not coerced or pressured into coming. He voluntarily came. Sometimes theologians call the cross the passive obedience of Jesus Christ. That's a great mistake because Jesus was never less passive and more active than when the cross drew near And he stood up to meet it. In fact, early on in the gospels, when he's still up in Galilee, it says he set his face toward Jerusalem where he knew he would be crucified. So it's a self-giving love. Number two, it's a self-initiating sacrifice. I always appreciate Jeff Foxworthy's, you know, redneck stuff, you know, and, uh, and his redneck words like poppy seed. Poppy seed, Did poppy seed, you do that, you know, or, uh, mayonnaise, mayonnaise, some big truck tires, or would you, did you, you didn't bring your gun, would you, did you, you know, or maybe even the Bible has a couple. Remember in Acts chapter 20, no, 19, the guy who fell out of the window when Paul was preaching, what was his name? Eutychus. You'd have cussed too if you would have fallen asleep during a sermon and fallen out of the third story window. Well, one of Jeff Foxworthy's words is initiate. She ate some cake, initiate some muffins, initiate, you know. And so here we have the self-initiating love of Jesus, right? Sorry, this is is like, that's 20 minutes of your life you're never going to get back. Uh, the self-initiate, I just kept saying initiate and I'm like, oh my God, 
it. Okay. <clears throat> As mentioned before in the example of Titus Oates, remember that self-initiating love towards his brothers, getting up out of the tent and laying his life down outside for the life of his friends. Greater love is no man than this than to lay down his life for his friends. And verse Ephesians 5, 2, walk in love as Christ has loved us and given himself for us. He gave himself for us. He offered himself up a sacrifice to God for a sweet smelling aroma. Or Romans 5, 8, but God demonstrate his own love toward us and that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. I'll admit at Calvary, we are preoccupied with the cross. I love that our church is called Calvary Chapel. Because I love focusing on what Jesus did for us at the cross of Calvary, Golgotha, the place of the skull. The reason we're so infatuated with the cross is because the cross is what steadily reminds us that we are loved by Jesus. It's the pulpit that preaches God's love. People who are immature in their Christianity seek to define the love of Jesus by things other than the cross. I had a dream that Jesus came and wrapped his arms around me and gave me a big hug. Or Jesus took the wheel. But the Bible is relentlessly consistent at this point. You want to know what the love of Christ is? It's the cross. The cross of Christ in your notes is the ground on which the church stands. It's the source from which her life flows. The instrument by which her status as Christ's beloved is demonstrated. The cross of Christ is the ground on which the church stands. The source from which her life flows. The instrument by which her status as Christ's beloved is demonstrated. You can be certain that no matter where we are in the word or what subject we're preaching on, we will come back to the cross. Talking about family, talking about the cross. Talking about money, talking about the cross. Sexuality, the cross. The cross is tied to all of these things. You might say, hey, Jesus isn't the only one who surrendered his life. It's true. Many friends die for other friends like Titus Oates or soldiers die for their uh, men in their foxhole with them and for their country and for their family and friends, parents give up everything for you. Such sacrifices are genuinely great. But there's two aspects of this love that set this sacrifice apart from others. These are just little sub points. Number one, or A, the infinite value of the one who made it. He was a man, fully man but fully God mystery of mysteries, God and man at the same time, the one who hung the stars humbled himself and became human flesh and died the death of the cross. Jesus becoming human flesh has been called the condescension, which means to come down the condescension of infinite proportions. We could never plumb the depths of such self giving sacrifice. Spurgeon said, in boundless condescension, he deigns. Don't worry, I had to look up what deigns means. It means to do something that one considers to be below one's dignity. So in boundless, con there's like 30 words that are too much for me to understand right there. So I looked them all up for you. It's my gift to you. 
in boundless, boundless. So if you had bounds, you'd have less of them. Okay. <laughs> condescension. You know when you get in the car and the windows fog up? It's condescension. So boundless condescension. Sometimes it's really hard to understand people. <laughs> Someone open a window. In boundless condescension, he deigns, amen, Adam, deigns, to occupy the same kind of place in reference to his church, which he calls his bride, he himself being the bridegroom who is soon to come. What else sets sets the sacrifice apart from others? The nature of the sufferings he endured for his bride. The crosses, sights, sounds, smells of Golgotha must have been terrible. Never get so preoccupied with the physical aspects of the cross. And sometimes I do that on a Good Friday service or often we do if we watch the passion of the Christ. But in doing that, sometimes we lose the very real sense of hell that was endured there, which was that Jesus, the son, was abandoned by the father, God. He descended into hell, outer darkness, gnashing of teeth, unquenchable fire. But the single most graphic expression of hell spoken by Jesus on the cross is, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? In ultimate judgment, the father turned his back on God, the son, the eternal experience of unrepentant and unforgiving people for all eternity became Jesus's at that moment. That's what makes hell, hell, the separation from God. And it ought to cause us to drop to our knees and drive us to repentance. What makes this love and this sacrifice so special is the infinite sacrifice driven by immeasurable love. Is that how you love your wife? An infinite sacrifice driven by immeasurable love? Rory, you're being irrelevant and unrealistic. There will probably never be a time that I have to die for my wife. Oh, yes, there is. Every time her greatest good requires an expression of self-denial on your part. You got to die. Tim Savage said, when the first pair consumed the forbidden fruit, they were drawn into a cauldron of intergender conflict. The man began to use the woman and the woman sought to master the man. This clash has poisoned every marriage ever since and has undermined societies founded on the unions of men and women. But in the death of Jesus Christ, the self-centeredness of both genders has dealt a mortal blow. In the resurrection of Jesus Christ, a new self-emptying person is miraculously born in everyone in whom Christ dwells. This new person is the hope of marriage. In husbands, it is a person who no longer seeks to use his wife, but to love her by laying down his life and picking up hers. In wives, it is a person who no longer seeks to master her husband, but proactively works to serve him at his point of need. The two partners are the exact opposites of their primordial selves, and in them, the bitter consequence of the fall are reversed. Marriages become populated by mutually self-giving partners They do, that is, if both husband and wives are in Christ, if both have received by faith the miracle of new birth with Jesus died and rose to provide. Love her by laying down your life and picking up hers. Is your child crying at night? 
who gets to get up and get it? Who gets to drive the nicer vehicle? Well, I'm the husband. I make more money and I ought to have the nicer vehicle. Everybody knows that. Do we hang out with friends tonight or do we stay home alone? Naturally, we hang out with friends. That's what Jesus would do. Okay. Right, Lens? Okay. Who should clean up this mess? Colossians 3.19, husbands love your wives and do not be bitter toward them. This is written because sometimes we get bitter towards our wife. Savage says there's not the slightest hint of bitterness in true love. Did you need that explained, Andy? <laughs> Looked like you appreciated that. Oh, that's why you wrote that. Okay. <sighs> See, sometimes the pastor has to connect the dots. Okay. I mastered that in high school. There is not the, <laughs> the best, my elective. Um, there is not the slightest hint of bitterness in true love. Husbands love your wives and do not be harsh with them. Instructs the apostle Paul in his letter to the Colossians. Harshness, bitterness, criticism. Each of these dims the radiance of a wife. But love patterned after Christ, a love that adopts the wife's life as though it were its own and makes whatever sacrifices are necessary to promote her best interests, will cause the marital union to explode with the glory of God. Marital love is like death. It wants all of you, it demands all of you, and it lays a claim to all that you are. It calls for everything. Several years ago, a young woman was attacked by a grizzly bear in the back country of the Rockies. Her male partner immediately hurled himself at the Bruin, yanked vigorously at its grizzly mane, and quickly made himself the object of the animal's fury. When the bear finally sauntered away, the man had given his life for his partner, while she stumbled hysterically back to the trailhead and to relative safety. The story is legendary for sacrifice and love, yet the love of a Christian husband ought to be characterized by an even greater degree of sacrifice, more than a life given in death, a life given in life. A loving husband will lay down his own life by taking up his wives. He will make her life his life. He will view her life as dearer to him than his own. He will live her life as though it were his own. He will give his life in life for hers. He will give her the gift of his life. Men, love is not surrendering your life in a blaze of romantic glory, but surrendering your own desires, preferences, pleasures, so that you might secure her own well-being. This may mean saying no to a promotion or a dream job opportunity. Saying no to a recreational activity or a hobby. Saying no to the expanded cable package or ESPN or saying no to the internet or saying no or maybe even yes to a dog. As I've learned, our desertia says, love of self dies hard. Though you drive a stake into the heart of self in a glorious sacrifice, it keeps coming back for more. Do you love your wife like this? Just when you think you've pressed yourself to the very end and you're about to say enough is enough 
Remember the model, guys. Get down on your hands and knees in your office or in your den or in your study or in the barn or wherever it is and spend time just remembering the cross. Remember the great romance and the greatest of all lovers. The value of the person and the nature of his suffering. Number three out of four little faucets here. Christ's love is exclusive. It's a love that's reserved only for her. The subject of the love is Jesus Christ. The object of the love or the recipient or the beloved is the church. Husbands, love your wives just as Christ also loved the church and gave himself for her. This word for, it's a teeny word that's packed with significance. It carries with it the idea of substitution on behalf of, for the sake of, in the place of, for the benefit of her. Why would it do that? Her look at verse 26 of Ephesians chapter five, that he might sanctify and cleanse her with the washing of water by the word that he might present her to himself, a glorious church not having spot or wrinkle or any such thing, but that she should be holy and without blemish for her, for her. It is exclusive, effectual love for his bride. Husbands love your wives just as Christ loved the church and gave himself for her. Matthew one twenty one. she will bring forth a son and you shall call his name Jesus for he will save his people from their sins. There's an aspect of the sovereignty of God that is true, that there are elect. There are those who are predestined to salvation, his people, the sheep, the church. And a love like this evokes a response in kind. The people of God return in an all-encompassing love, loving God with all their heart, with all their soul, with all their might for him, for him. And so there's fidelity, a loving God's fidelity engenders loyalty of his subjects. There's reciprocal fidelity in a response of love. The same pattern applies in marriage. In your notes, when husbands demonstrate unwavering faithfulness to their wives, they prompt a response in kind. Their women will be devoted to them. Husbands must guard this fidelity and faithfulness at all costs. They must admit no rivals to their love. A wife should know herself to be the sole recipient of her husband's romantic affection. As he vowed at the altar, a husband must forsake all others. The Bible is not just to make theologians, but to bring a practical end and a task theology. It brings practical outworking. Responsibility of a Christian husband is to copy the self-giving love that Jesus Christ has for his bride. For her alone, husbands love your wife. Zerdia, believe in your notes, says practical attention to a wife extends to everything. It should manifest itself in the most delicate attention to her comfort and her feelings and consulting her tastes concealing her failings and doing nothing to degrade her, but everything to exalt her and acknowledging her excellencies, commending her efforts to please and meeting and anticipating all of her reasonable requests in short, in doing all that ingenuity can invent for her substantial happiness and general comfort. Finally, fourth facet of this kind of love is that it is beautifying. It's beautifying. Verse 26 says that he might sanctify and cleanse her with the washing of water by the word. 
Uh, I was getting ready to head out and help Chris Newell this morning and and I uh, was going in to say goodbye to Lindsay and she was in the bathroom doing her hair and crimping and curling and all of that stuff, you know, and I just walked in, I said, I had just read this and I was like, it is my job to beautify you. And then just a little fluff and a little puff and she, okay, no, I didn't. <clears throat> she goes, oh, is that your job? I'm like, well, that's what I read in my notes. <laughs> they call me Vidal. <laughs> Vidal Sassoon. Okay. Paul Mitchell. Okay, Paul Mitchell. Aquanet. Okay, anyways. Thank you. I needed that, Susie. John 17, 17 through 19. <laughs> She's like, <laughs> some of us go to bed at 7. Am I right? Okay. <laughs> Sanctify them by your truth. Your word is truth. This is Jesus' prayer before the cross. Set them apart from the world. He prays to the Father by your word. Your word is truth. As you sent me into the world, I've also sent them into the world. And for their sakes, I sanctify myself that they also may be sanctified by the truth. So his love is a sanctifying love. First Corinthians six eleven, and such were some of you. And there was a list previously of all kinds of depraved behavior. But he says, but you were washed but you were sanctified, but you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus and by the spirit of God. And so the gospel washes us and sanctifies us and justifies us. Even today, washing is available and can be symbolized in baptism in Acts twenty-two sixteen. And now why are you waiting? Arise and be baptized and wash away your sins, calling on the name of the Lord. Hebrews nine fourteen. how much more shall the blood of Christ who through the eternal spirit offered himself without spot to God, cleanse your conscience from dead works to serve the living God. And final verse here, Hebrews 10, 22, let us draw near with a true heart and full assurance of the faith, having our hearts sprinkled from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. He washes us so that he might present her to himself, a glorious church, Ephesians 5, 27, not having a spot or a wrinkle or any such thing. You hear the beautifying in it but that she should be holy and without blemish. One great purpose in our marriage is our holiness. In 2 Corinthians eleven two, Paul said, I'm jealous for you with a godly jealousy, for I betrothed you to one husband that I might present you as a chaste virgin to Christ. In 1 Thessalonians five twenty three, may the God of peace himself sanctify you completely and may your whole spirit, soul, and body be preserved blameless at the coming of the Lord Jesus. The job of two or more believers in gospel community is to promote this holiness in each other. And that is nonetheless true for a Christian marriage. Keller says in your notes, friendship is a deep oneness that develops as two people speaking the truth and love to each other, journey together in the same horizon, to the same horizon. What does this mean? It means that any two Christians with nothing else but a common faith in Christ can have a robust friendship helping each other on their journey toward the new creation, as well as doing ministry together in the world. How can they do that? They do it through spiritual transparency. Christian friends are not only to honestly confess their own sins to each other, but they are to lovingly point out their friend's sins if he or she is blind to them. You should give your Christian friends hunting licenses to confront you. If you are failing to live in line with your commitments, Christian friends are to stir one another up, 
even provoking one another to get them off dead center. This isn't to happen infrequently, but should happen at a very concrete level every day. Christian friends admit wrongs, offer or ask for forgiveness, and take steps to reconcile when one disappoints another. Hebrews 3.13 says, But exhort one another daily while it's still called today, lest any of you be hardened through the deceitfulness of sin. Keller goes on to say, If any two unrelated Christians are to provoke each other towards love and goodness, are to firm each other's gifts and hold each other accountable to grow out of their sins, how much more should a husband and a wife do that? Keller goes on to say, Romance, sex, laughter, and plain fun are the byproducts of this process of sanctification, refinement, and glorification. Those things are important, but they can't keep the marriage going through years and years of ordinary life. What keeps the marriage going is your commitment to your spouse's holiness, your commitment to his or her beauty. You're committed to his greatest uh, greatness and perfection. Uh, I think it's Keller or uh, Savage. Biblical love transforms a wife. It's the most powerful shaping agent in the world. Love elevates a wife above everything common and defiled, cleanses her from the sullying influences of her past and transforms her into a radiant person. It bathes her in the glory of God and removes from the eyes of her husband and consequently from her own eyes too. Any taint or blemish? What an exquisite creature is the woman loved by her husband. Men take note. The wife of your dreams, indeed a wife exceeding your dreams, awaits the demonstration in and through you of Christ-like love. Too many husbands adopt a different pattern. They nurture a vision of the ideal woman and then point out to their wives areas where they fall short. They chip away at their wives, often issuing toxic barbs. Why aren't you more disciplined? Why are you putting on weight? Why don't you pay more attention to my interests? Why are you always late? Why is the house a mess? Why are the children misbehaving? And so the beautifying love of a husband actually causes a wife to be the wife of his dreams. Closing out with a Spurgeon quote here. A brother minister said to me the other day when we were talking to one another about what the gospel has done for men. Did you ever think that a, what a wonderful thing the gospel is? That it has made possible such happiness as you and I enjoy in our domestic relationships? And of course, I heartily responded to that remark. For if there's anything that is a miniature picture of heaven upon earth, it's a pair of Christians happily united whose children grow up in the fear of the Lord and render to them increased comfort and joy every day. Oh, how much some of us owe to the gospel for the happiness of our homes. And that's the end of our gospel driven marriage series. All right. Got your questions. Bust them out. Just go over them real quick, real quick. Cause there's only 11 of them. Lindsay, come on up here. You're not getting out of anything tonight. Check, check, check. Okay. You're going to have wonderful things to say. I know it. Don't worry. All right. So week five's questions. Do you ever grow tired or impatient when hearing about the cross of Calvary? Why is meditation upon the sacrifice of Jesus so necessary for love towards wives and submission toward husbands. Uh, I remember a family member of ours that uh, was just growing frustrated with 
the church that he was going to because um, the gospel was always preached at it. And it was like, oh gosh, I already know the gospel. Just give me something else, you know? And uh, when you study that the whole Bible is the gospel, every story, every, you know, number, everything points to the gospel and is the gospel. And is to, you know, as Jesus said, these are they that speak of me. And, uh, and so, um, that always is in my mind, you know, this relative is missing out because, uh, the gospel is not just like the foundation of the house. We often think it is like, oh, the gospel is what's preached it, you know, at a, at the end of a sermon that people get saved to. And then, you know, and that's the kind of the beginning for them. <laughs> the gospel is not just the foundation of a house, but it's the, you know, it's the, uh, the stick walls, you know, it's the insulation, it's the electrical wiring, it's the roof with the shingles and just all things. The whole of Christianity is the gospel, flows from the gospel. And so, um, I don't know if you ever get impatient, you know, when, you know, maybe in this marriage, even you're like, come on, give, you know, forget the books, give me that refrigerator magnet with all the little practical things that I can do to, like, for my wife <coughs> during the day. Um, and so it's just a good question here uh, for us to meditate upon um, the sacrifice of Jesus, that it's necessary for wives and uh, husbands. Any thoughts? No, these are good. Yeah, I think so too. Uh, <laughs> ponder the Bible's lack of practical advice on how to foster romance, because pondering... Hmm. You know, you're right. I know. Okay. <clears throat> but it's wealth. <clears throat> Excuse me. Just have this dry cough. <clears throat> uh, can we edit that out, Johnny? Uh, but it's wealth of description of the Savior's love and Christian duty because of it. Why might practical tips and tricks be so much less necessary for a Christian couple than meditation upon the gospel? Okay, let's, come on guys, let's shake it off, loosen up. What do you guys think about this? Okay, like why isn't there just like a little appendix at the back of the Bible that's just like, all right guys, do this for your wife, February 14th is coming up, you know? And why would the gospel be even more powerful and advantageous than that little appendix at the back. Appendix? Isn't that what you get taken out when you're like throwing up or something? Okay. Any thoughts on that? Raise your hand. Anybody here, just be honest. Like, you'd love that little practical magnet to just go on the, like, please just give me that. Yeah. Yeah. Elizabeth? I think I saw that. Okay. No, that's what it, yeah. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Um, Come on. Casey, I knew it. Okay, thank you.
Man, I think we could write a book with the advice coming out of this group right now. <laughs> Should have given you a microphone so we'd have it recorded. Joy. I was thinking, um, I think these are all super good. And I was thinking a little more along the lines that Casey was thinking, not only is every woman different, but every situation between you and your spouse are different. Like, in the morning it's one thing, and in the afternoon it's another, and then the night it's another thing. And how this, we need the way to do it, not the details of, what you do in each specific situation, but this can be applied to all situations. Mm-hmm. Not to bring math into it, but a lot like a math equation, you can find all sorts of different answers by using one equation. I didn't know that. <laughs> Doesn't sound very mathy to me. That's why she holds the checkbook, everybody. Um, any other thoughts on that? So it's not that practical things don't happen or aren't fun, you know. Um, they're almost kind of like imperatives, you know. And you just can't have those things without sowing to the spirit in the important things. And then as, I mean, it's just why all of these imperatives in Ephesians 5 come after the first four chapters about who Jesus is and what he's done for us and the need to be filled with the spirit and then spirit filled husbands will love their wives as Christ loved the church. And they're going to be doing it. Something that this series and a lot of this gospel centered preaching 
um, kind of two words that constantly come up through them is um, that Jesus is the model and the motivation for our holy living. So he's lived it out for us. So he's provided the example. Um, he motivates us. That type of love um, uh, causes us to want to live that way back or, or even out towards others. And then not only the, the model and the motivation, but the power or the propulsion as to how to do it. So even if you know these things, how do you even do it? You do it by the power of the Holy Spirit. And, you know, the Holy Spirit is just amazing because, you know, my wife, who doesn't necessarily love flowers, for instance, you know, definitely doesn't like wildflowers, you know, because they got bugs on them. So you bring wildflowers into the house, it's like, oh, geez, like, you don't even know me, you know? Uh, it's not like that. But um, it's way harsher. Uh, and then... Um, or you buy flowers cut from, you know, or from down at the store, and then it's kind of like, oh, gosh, that was $20 that we could have just gone out and spent time together, you know, but now we got that sitting on the table over there. That's pretty awesome, you know, and now you're out fixing the motorcycle, so great. That's just so cool, um, you know, but sometimes the Holy Spirit's like, get some flowers for your wife, you know, and then it's like, those. that's like exactly like needed at that moment and the Lord knew it and the bugs don't even bother, you know? So, so as we're filled with the spirit, he moves us towards those practical things. Yep. What? Uh, oh man, I did number five. Okay. I forgot. I wrote these questions this morning. Number three, husband, the only way for you to love your wife ideally is to thoroughly love God. How is cultivation of your love of God going? On a scale of one to 10, how much effort are you putting into loving him? And maybe you should ask your wife this. What do you think? On a scale of one to 10, how much effort am I putting into loving God? Both I mean, we don't have to ask that. It's just for them. Um, <laughs> if it's not a 10. One, two, three, go. I'm just kidding. <laughs> <laughs> oh, man. That would be funny, huh? Solid five and a half, I'd say, at least. You don't know me. If it's not a 10, what is getting in the way of your all-out pursuit of him? Wives, apply the same question to your submission as to the Lord. To what degree are you submitting to the Lord? Ready? One, two, three, go. Uh, okay, Casey was mentioning this again. Imagine the launching pad and the destination of Christ's love. How wide is that gulf separating the two? Number five, how does the love of Christ provide the model and motivation and power to love your wife well? Number six, after reflecting on the gospel, why would the husband's love have no time to worry about if it will be reciprocated through the submission, through submission and respect? Why will a husband's love be lacking if it depends upon feelings or passions as its basis. Wives, why is it radically safe to submit to a husband who loves you as Jesus does? I imagine, um, you know, wives that have history of abuse, you know, or even in their, maybe seeing it in their parents, um, or they work around it or something, or they, you know, 
give ear to a lot of maybe the feminist movement in our culture, in our world. Um, and so, you know, submission is such a harsh and hard word to the world that doesn't understand it or has seen it misused and abused. Um, and yet when you come and you hear what God's design is for love on the part of a Christian husband, why would that be something that someone who comes from a history of that would be able to exhale and find rest in um, godly headship and submission, love and submission. Number eight, husbands, imagine a recent conflict in your marriage where you withdrew love from your wife because of her sin. How does the gospel call love to be drawn out toward your wife instead? And how could you have done so in that situation? Sometimes some of these questions are a little bit private, like they literally are for a husband to just kind of go before the Lord and pray about and, you know, you don't really need to talk about it necessarily with your spouse, but it may be something that could be like, yeah, so you know when you keyed my car and you said, you know, like I withdrew love from you at that moment, but then I realized maybe you meant it in a nice way. I'm kidding. Uh, Husbands, Jacob told me, I'm so tired right now. (laughs) Rory, if I'm not laughing, it's because you're not funny. Also, I'm tired. Um, Number nine, husbands, how does your love need to grow in, these are the four faucets. Yes, I said that. Yeah, I know. Yeah. So like the faucets of God's love. And all the water comes out. All the love water. Self-sacrificing, self-initiating, exclusively for her, and beautifying. How does your love need to grow in those four facets? Read 1 Corinthians 13, 4 through 7, and replace the word love with your name. Now, I know we did it and we had a lot of fun, but I want you to do it with your own name, guys. Just pray about it and ask the Lord, how do I need to grow and have the Lord change me in these ways? And then we added a question, how rightly does your marriage reflect the gospel? All right, guys, thanks so much for taking these five weeks. Um, We could have made it 12 or 13 weeks, probably could have done that for you, but this is just a summer intensive drinking from a fire hose. Um, And thank you guys for just your dedication to be here. Thank you, Casey, for your hard work in getting food for us every week. Yes, honor those to whom honor is due and Kim and Jessica for Mm, making this a beautiful, romantical place, right? Super fun. Johnny for running the live stream up in the sound booth where it's 115 degrees and the computers freeze up because it's so hot. Uh, David for running the sound for us each week and getting that set up. Running things from the amphitheater and back to over here. McKinnon's for letting us use their giant fans and tables and all of that. So, and everyone, you guys all just were such a blessing. It was really fun to go through this with you. Uh, there may be like some bonus videos put out for you on some things that I didn't get to cover in the five weeks, but, um, let me pray for you guys and I'll cut you loose. Lord, I know that, uh, there's, there's really some just wonderful time that could be spent 
weeks and weeks and weeks and just even more meditation upon it. I was just thinking, oh, I wish we could get into what Peter had to say. Husbands, dwell with your wives with understanding. Uh, dwelling together with her that your uh, prayers might not be hindered and, and uh, giving preference to her and being heirs together of the grace of life. And so much that we could hear from Peter on the subject and we could look at history and the Old Testament on the subject and so many things, Lord, and, and maybe there will be a day for that in the future. We just thank you for this time uh, examining the gospel and especially tonight, Lord, just so special to look at this one just moment of history where it's just the greatest love story. Um, just, Lord, it, it ought to move us to loving our wives greater and, and more fervently and deeply and sacrificially. And wives, no doubt, can also have reciprocal love back, um, modeled after Jesus' love, and we to love one another and speaking to one another in, in love and just so much, Lord, that we just need the Spirit to be upon us as we go home and think about these things, Lord, how easy it would be to just kind of be like, oh, yeah, it's all over, and and we just never even think about it again, and it just becomes an event we did in 2021. But I just do pray, Lord, that it would be things that press into our heart and all the different blanks that were filled in in the notes, just key words that would cause us to just jump back to just wisdom from really godly, gospel-centered men and, and books. And um, so just help, Lord, even now, if there's just still hurting marriages, Lord, just continue to work in those marriages and and just uh, bring healing and hope and life and and just the equipping that's been, been done in this room for us to now go out to others that are hurting in the church and the community and speak the gospel of life into those marriages, Lord. Uh, we just give you all the glory in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.